I'm Joe Randazzo, and this is who I am. My guest today is comedian and writer Joe Randazzo. Hi, Joe. Thank you, Thank you for coming down to the garage and uh, hanging out and doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. <clears throat> a lot of stuff in here. I know, yeah. It's uh, it's actually, we spent three days over Christmas tidying it up and oh, really? made it a real workable space because it was just, it looked like a hoarder's house where we'd built pathways through boxes and stuff. And yeah. There's some things I don't recognize. Like, I don't, I don't know what these things are. Oh, that's my sound cart. That's my, my day job. Oh. Yeah. So I have that one. That's my big one. That's my little one next to you. So they're oh, all okay. sound recording equipment. And all of this stuff, basically, that's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> it's all for show. I forgot that that was what you did by trade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You never yeah. talk about it. I, I always feel weird about it because I never know. I never know if the people on the stuff that I'm doing are going to necessarily... I get very politically opinionated on Twitter and stuff like oh, that. Right. So I always worry that I'm just going to upset shows or right. cross lines there and try to keep it separate. But I, I've asked people if they want to, if they would like me to do more stuff about it. But, you know, I never really do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what are the political ramifications of bad sound recording, you know? Yeah. I think, uh, I, yeah, I don't think there are any. I mean, we're... <laughs> We're union. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, We're that's protected. political. <laughs> everything, every, everything can, can be political. Yeah. I was thinking about, uh, you know, the whole, like, uh, well, you, you and I know each other mostly through Twitter, but mm-hmm. I was writing something on there about how, like, I don't, like, I usually just say Merry Christmas to people or Happy Holidays. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really, it's just like whatever... If I feel like it's a Christmas setting and the people celebrate Christmas, yeah, I'll say it. If I'm genuinely feeling like wishing someone a Merry Christmas, but Happy Holidays is also fine because it's generic and not everyone celebrates Christmas. Yeah, but now this year, and it's been building up to this for a while. Like even during the Bush years, there was a war on Christmas mm-hmm. and all that stuff. But this year just feels like you couldn't really say it without feeling that you were taking a side. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was out somewhere with my wife, and we, we said Merry Christmas to someone. I don't remember what. And we all just looked at each other like, <laughs> what does this mean? Are you yeah? Is it are code? you taking a stand, <laughs> or are you just saying it or not? Yeah. And the same thing with, like, uh, you know, the NFL. My, my wife was saying, like, oh, I don't think we should support the NFL to some friends who were over at our house. And then there was this whole calculus going on of like, oh, does she is she saying that because she doesn't like the way she because Trump is in a fight with the NFL, or does she not want to support the NFL because they mistreat their players and give them all Alzheimer's and don't do anything about it? It's like everything has a political yeah. dimension to it now. Yeah, I think except it's, it's, sound. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that, that was the whole thing of like the. Early on with uh, the president complaining about the sound quality and how he was going to get proper people to do the oh, job that's properly. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm Before sure. Before he was president, right? During yeah, I think it debates. was like, yeah, it was very early on and he had a couple of issues where he was grabbing the mic and yeah. complaining mm-hmm. about the workers. God, what a great guy. <laughs> what a wonderful man. Every day, something new, some new dimension of humanity Yeah, is discovered. But yeah, it's, I think you're right. I remember this. I mean, I, I, I don't even care that about Christmas. I'm growing up in England. It wasn't. It was never. There's never been this notion of a war on Christmas. There's like this kind of forced idea now because of Brexit and because of stuff like that, where uh, people are like, no, no, we have to take a stand. It's like, what are you talking about? There's no stand to be had here. It's you walk around and the song is Merry Christmas, so you say Merry Christmas. Or if someone says Have a good holiday, it's like, oh, you're being American. Cool, good for you. Uh-huh. And that's it. But now, if you, I, I remember this year, I remember saying to people, I would look for their cue and see what they'd say and then respond. But if I ever jumped the gun and said something, I remember thinking, shit, did they think I just, am, am I like attacking them? Uh-huh. They, did they yeah. look at me like, did you just say Merry Christmas because you're 
telling yeah. me that like you know you want me out of this country or something <laughs> yeah like, there is just this thing where and i remember thinking about this before before he was elected but just where it's like because the media reports on him so much and you have to by virtue of his status discuss everything that's said mm-hmm. it's like we're all held hostage in this like lunatic psyche and it and it really is and it is like what dictators do yeah but it's like you have to like you you're, you start to think in this paranoid way and at least look at things through that paranoid dimension and, mm-hmm. and it's like he he's in, an insane person yeah but who knows how to manipulate media yeah and it's just like in not a very long period of time we've allowed ourselves like as much as we like to talk about how dumb he is and how ineffective he is like we're talking about this right you know it's like it's insane yeah that it's even a thing like <clears throat> i don't want this to be what we're talking about but, <laughs> but it's just like because uh, mostly i just talk to children now um <laughs> and we can't talk about this but i was thinking about like you know all the people even the people who are like there is no war on christmas donald trump like you're still part of the this yeah this degrading conversation that we're having. And then I was just thinking it through of like, you know, like you're allowed to say Merry Christmas and everyone it's just, but, but the, the, even if there were to some degree people who, who, you know, even if there were, which the, I think there is to some degree, the political correctness of saying, well, let's just say happy holidays. That's not bad because not everyone celebrates Christmas. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. it's not even a bad thing. Yeah. This is kind of like, Oh, Oh, political correctness. Like, well, why is that bad? Why is yeah, that? it's like whenever, you know, it's like people have their power and privilege taken away is what they get mad about. But it's mm-hmm. like, if you don't celebrate Christmas, do you constantly want people saying it to you and like giving you all this imagery? And like, <laughs> I, I, like I, I, know I see lots of prominent entertainment Jews on Twitter talk about how like, oh, we don't care if, it, if I were Jewish, I would be like, shut up. Mm-hmm. I, I think it would start to bother me. <laughs> After a while, so happy holidays. I don't know, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> um, one of the things that is, I, I with, I mean, you, you have a presence on Twitter, I think, and you've even, Huge. haven't you like won an award as someone on Twitter? I think, isn't it? Like, let me see, I've got it. I did make friend, notes. Not a Pulit Pulitzer. It's a no, I haven't won a Pulitzer. <laughs> uh, this uh, is from my Wikipedia page. Yeah, I can't even see where it is now, but it does mention that you're the. Uh, the ECNY award for outstanding performance in the field of tweeting. (laughs) 2009 or 10 or something? Which I think was, um, that was like the golden, I know that was when, roughly when Twitter started, I think it was like 2007 or 8. And that was like, uh, there was this golden age where you could go on and people were just, it was like comedy was being manufactured by everybody for everybody and you would go on and yeah. people would make jokes and then they'd become friends or they'd connect mm-hmm. to each other and then there'd be all these communications and, and conversations that were born in this little period and now it's like the, the brakes have been slammed on and everyone is suspicious there and there's mm-hmm. like your follower count is that's it no one else is going to join because they don't know you might be like a robot or you might be russian or you right. might be and there's this this crazy um paranoia that's grown out of it but I don't know. It just feels like the the platform was built for that comedy. And I remember there was that that guy. I can never remember his name, but he was like a chaplain in the the college, and he kind of he, he ripped off a few jokes and oh yeah, stuff. and uh, product prodigal Sam. Or yeah, something like that. yeah. And then and everybody was like, no, no, that's not right. Back away and and mm-hmm. leave. And he kind of left, and and it was like this beautiful moment where I'm like, yeah, this place is great, and we're gonna make <laughs> jokes together. And it's just. Why, why do you think, I mean, obviously the political landscape has changed and you, you said that, that Bush was, or it was already happening then, it was probably happening before then for people who were mm-hmm. older. But why do you think that, one, why do you think Twitter was so good for comedy or was it good for comedy? And two, why do you think, do you think it can ever get back there? I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I think most of the most of the friends that I made during that time are the ones who I still consider to be f- friends mm-hmm. because the, it wasn't as crowded. It wasn't as polluted. You, there weren't, I mean, uh, 
death-defying politics was not part of our everyday conversation. And I don't think that the outrage or take industry mm-hmm. was as as big as it is now. Like, yeah. there wasn't so much stuff that was just like... Because, you know, the news and journalistic outfits figured out how to game the system mm-hmm. more in the in the preceding years <clears throat> than they did back in those days. So it was just like, it was a lot less populated and you had these just in- instant connections with people that was really built on, you know, your, your point of view and your tone could really come across very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there was a lot more distinction too. Mm-hmm. Like I think now Twitter has broken into a lot of different sociological groups yeah. and cultures and clubs and they all tend to talk the same. They all tend to think the same. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, signaling. There's a lot of, uh, it, it does really, I mean, it's the oldest observation that's ever been made, but it really does remind me a lot of high school mm-hmm. or, or maybe even middle school <laughs> <laughs> where there's like even more unchecked uh, immature sexual energy mm-hmm. than high school <laughs> <clears throat> where there's really like a few people who are sort of like the, the, like, you know, the influence orbs mm-hmm. in, in their little group. And then everybody else is kind of mimicking them and trying to please them and be noticed by them. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's become, I think it plays to a lot of our worst Instincts like that joke thing before was like, oh, somebody liked this joke and I might get some followers and and like, oh, and it was really fun to spend an evening like joking around with people all over the world. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, like I met so many people through it in those in those first few years because I worked at The Onion at that time. And that was that was my like way to have some uh you know, credibility with people who I have no business talking to otherwise. <laughs> so you had this this really interesting access and you could prove yourself by your by your wit or your intelligence or your generosity or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And then it just everything now, all of media gets filtered through there. Yeah. And you know, the the way to kind of cause because we're still all just shouting, hoping to get some sort of positive feedback, mm-hmm. you know, to get that little, you know, synapse firing. So it is just a competition of, of, of yelling. And I feel like the, partly because of the, where the American psyche has gone over the past few years or global psyche, I don't know. It's really very negative in nature, mm. you know, and, and <clears throat> like I'm, I'm starting, you know, during, I got back on Twitter, I took a few months off to work on writing and then I got back on maybe in like August or September and I've managed to not get so depressed mm-hmm. just by my habits and yeah. not really engaging and like muting certain people <laughs> and just not like following certain threads, mm-hmm. you know, like I'll get, I'll still get my news there, but not getting involved yeah. in the conversation because it's so easy to get dragged down. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about like, you know, I always hear this thing like, you know, you would never... You would never be as aggressive with someone in person yeah. as you would on Twitter, which I think is true. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also, in some ways, Twitter is also a more accurate reflect, reflection of of who we are because someone wouldn't stand in the middle of the street and shout about white supremacy either. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. so so you don't have cause to shout back at them. Yeah. But when you're when you have all these weird social interactions or or animosities or jealousies with people, you don't tell them how you feel mm-hmm. in real life. On Twitter, you do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you really are feeling that way. But I think it's all accelerated and magnified by by the intimacy and the, and the relative anonymity of it. But I don't think it's fair to say that it's a less true version of who we are. I think it's, like, a more petty, less filtered, mm-hmm. truer version of who we are in some ways. Yeah. But it just really feels crowded and everybody's just yelling and trying to be more at least in the slice that I see uh-huh. trying to be more negative and fatalistic than, yeah. the, than the last person and yeah. that just really gets to me after a while <laughs> you know yeah yeah it feels like there's been 
like that is the reality that we're now in. So to go into this virtual version of reality and have that same mood be perm just permeate throughout that reality is like, come on, we need a break, you know, I need yeah. a place to go. But when I like I, I've I've after the holidays of you know getting back into work mode, um, and not eating, you know, <laughs> bullshit mode, and just trying to get back on track. So I've kind of I really haven't been looking at Twitter during the day. Like I'll check maybe in the evening or something. I'm like, oh yeah, life is not as insane when you're out mm-hmm. walking around in the street, yeah, not seeing what fourteen hundred people you barely know think about every single fucking thing and all of the news is bad yeah but life is not bad no you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know life is actually can be good and beautiful and great so it's like just stepping back from it it really does make you think like well when you're on twitter you're much more aware of these things that you wouldn't be aware of if you're sort of just out on your own Mm -hmm. but also you're you're not so burdened by this like synthetic sense of urgency that seems to be coming from everywhere and nowhere at once, which mm-hmm. I think you, when you're on Twitter all the time, yeah, you can't help it, you know? Yeah. I was, uh, it's funny you say about that sense of urgency. I've been, I, I play words with friends as a, like a way of switching off and, mm-hmm. and they've just introduced this feature that's called the lightning round where you go on and there's like a group of five people in each team and you have to get to a certain score as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why? Why have you done this? <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> yeah. We don't need this in our life. Yeah. I just want to look at the letters very calmly and then like, oh, I'm not going to do anything yet and turn it off. But just this sense of constantly yeah. forcing us to do, to engage and to do this and to do this and get to this. And Yeah, I play word cookies. <laughs> I think I posted about it because it doesn't have a so it doesn't have a social component to it I can it's just word puzzles Mm -hmm. and uh on New Year's Day you collect a bunch of you collect coins and then coins can give you 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 know you you pay for clues if you're stumped Mm -hmm. on New Year's Day I think it gifted everybody a hundred coins and I was like touched (laughs) and I realized word cookies really is giving me more emotionally than anyone on Twitter and I and I used to you used to like, I don't know, I, I don't want to sound like some old fogey, but I think there was just more, you still treated Twitter as if it were an extension of your actual social life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember I would ask people like, do you mind if I retweet you? And like thanking people for retweeting me and like the follow Friday thing and all that yeah. stuff where it was just much more of like, I don't know, there was a more, there was more sense of these are, these are people. Yeah. You know, and now it's like just like these disembodied opinions, <laughs> or voices or something. Um, you mentioned the, that you were working on The Onion. And I think when I started, you, you were sort of when I started following you, I think it was when you did the Abducted by Aliens. Uh, oh, wow. Thing. Yeah. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, how did you start working on The Onion? How did that come about? Um, what was 2006? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Let's see. I had moved to New York after college. I went to I went to Emerson College in Boston for broadcast journalism. Um, but I always really wanted to be, you know, doing something in the comedy or entertainment mm-hmm. industry. I had friends who were, uh, you know, went into the acting program, but that felt like a a no go. You know, yeah. I wanted something where I would, when I would come out, I would have a discernible like a set of skills. Mm-hmm. And I really liked like Ira, Ira Glass and that sort of like storytelling. Yeah. So I thought maybe broadcast journalism would be a good way to combine those things. Um, and I went for that. And then in my senior year, I, I entered into this comedy scholarship. It was the first year that they had it there at Emerson, the Jill Murphy Comedy Award, named after this this guy who went to Emerson with a bunch of people like David Cross and Laura Keitlinger and Anthony Clark, they all went together and he died of brain cancer and his family started a scholarship and I, and I wound up winning it and that allowed me the money to like buy some computer equipment and move to New York. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then when I moved to New York, of course, there's you don't just like get an NPR job. Although I had worked, <laughs> I had worked for NPR in Boston for a couple of years, mm-hmm. writing the morning news for the local morning edition. So then in, in New York, I started working for. Um, I had a friend who worked as an editor on The Apprentice, mm-hmm. and through her, I got in, worked on The Apprentice for a couple seasons. I worked on the the, the Trump Apprentice, the Martha Stewart Apprentice. Uh, Survivor, and a show called uh, Damon Dash's Ultimate Hustler, which is like his <laughs> version of The Apprentice. Yeah. And I started kind of moving through from post-production into production and kind of moving up the ranks a little bit and seeing how, you know, you to be, what path to follow to become a producer who seemed like the people who actually were having fun and having some creative input mm-hmm. and making a lot of money. But then at the end of the day, it was sort of like, you worked so hard and so long for something that in the end was just like, I wouldn't watch this show. So why, you know, yeah. it's like, it became, it, I had a kind of like existential crisis. And so I, I quit all of that stuff. And then I was working for, um, a friend's fruit basket company called Manhattan Fruitier. Great fruit baskets. <laughs> um, Really high-level stuff. <laughs> Wonderful place to work. <laughs> a lot of fun. Um, but I was just really... It wasn't a creatively challenging job. Like, it was a great place to work, but, you yeah. know, I wanted something where I could be, you know, doing the things I wanted to be doing. So I started taking improv classes at a place called the Magnet Theater in New York, which mm-hmm. is still open, um, founded by Armando Diaz. It was really great. It's, like, across the way from the old UCB. Um, and I was still kind of like, uh, you know, shy, mm-hmm. shy guy without a lot of confidence, I guess. And the Magna Theater had a more, it was more of a smaller, upstart, warm family vibe. And UCB already by that point was very much like, you got to go 101, 102, 103, 104, then you do this and you get on a Herald team. Like it was starting to become that yeah. farm league mm-hmm. for comedy professionals and it just was like i really wanted something a little gentler yeah had you done any stand-up at that point or tried? yeah yeah yeah, i've done stand-up um started doing stand-up when i was in college and i'd done a lot of performing but improv just seemed like such a i don't know just i didn't like that ucb which is a great place and i've done a lot of stuff with them since but had this i just didn't want something that had competition to it yeah you know, I just mm-hmm. I wanted to just do it and, and not have to think about status and all that. Yeah. And that, at least that was my impression of UCB um, at the time. And then through Magnet Theater, I wound up taking classes with um, a couple of people, uh, one of whom was a former editor in chief of The Onion named Carol Kolb. Her boyfriend, Tony Kameen, who's a stand up comedian, and then Amy Baradale, who used to be an editor at The Onion. And we, you know, we hit it off. And and when Amy left, she recommended me for the job. Mm -hmm. And um, then editor-in-chief at the time named Scott Dickers was like, okay, here's an article that is, that needs some work. So I want you to take two hours, edit it, and email it back to me. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't even believe that it was happening because The Onion was just, especially at that time, now I think it's a little more known, but, you know, this kind of like mysterious... No one knew who worked there. There were no bylines. It yeah. was just this big monolithic voice that just appeared, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did a test edit on it, and he called me and, you know, offered me the job. And then that was in 2006. I was hired as an assistant editor. And then within a couple of years, I was the editor, the head editor, not editor-in-chief. They didn't use that term. And then, yeah, I was there for six years mm-hmm. from then until 2012 when the when the company moved from New York to Chicago. Okay. Where did they start? Because they were, they were a college paper. Yeah, they, they started in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, through my time working there, I got to learn a lot about The Onion and the sort of mythology of it and how it started. I mean, it was, it was started by two guys who basically it was to sell coupons like they they, <laughs> they made a funny paper mm-hmm. 
and it was much more um it was much more like uh, um what's that like ridiculous not national Enquirer, but weekly world news oh, it yeah. was more mm-hmm. like just insane stuff yeah um and then on the bottom you know we 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 dug up some of these when we did a a a book of the old um front pages they were just like coupons for local pizza places and barber shops and all that stuff, and there was just it was just a money making yeah. venture, and they and they sold it after a year or two, and then it became more of a USA Today kind of parody, and then it became more of you know local news, and then it sort of morphed into the Today, which is what it is today, more of like a New York Times kind of like very important yeah. Um, journalistic voice Mm -hmm. but that took you know that was in it was founded in 1988 oh really wow yeah so it had been around for a while and then and then really during the clinton years is when it started becoming actual like meaty social commentary and satire and really aping the Mm -hmm. the conventions and voice of of newspapers yeah hmm and you uh, going back to your the the improv stuff because in um, in your book the uh, funny on purpose book which I mm-hmm. have right here um, I was kind of surprised that that like you're s- uh, not for any reason but I just uh, I remember reading the bit about improv and you seem like such a champion yeah. of improv and so positive about it and I've always I guess I mean uh, my my idea of improv has always been from the um, Whose Line Is It Anyway crowd. Oh, yeah. And, and in London, they had they, they would basically recreate that at the comedy circuit there. Um, and it's always seemed like a kind of baldy, get a bunch of people and get an audience to shout rude words and then uh-huh. go with that. But it's, you know, I've never, I've never seen it as this whole thing of like developing a voice and building confidence and building all of these traits that you need to go and do stuff in public and, and yeah. do like uh, stand up and things like that. So, um, did you said you were shy when you when you when you started? But did you did you feel a moment where you felt like you were forming as a comedian there, or was it more like you you were ready and you just needed to find the confidence to, to step out? Do you think? I think the thing I was more shy about was the like social aspect uh-huh. of it, the sort of like. You know, because <clears throat> I still get a lot of social anxiety. Um, I'd prefer if, you know, whatever social situation I walk into, that I'm the highest status. You know, that would be <laughs> ideal. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you can't always have that, you no. know? Um, but I think what what improv really did, and I, and I have not done improv in, in, in a few years at this point, mm-hmm. but it, like... It's a kind of, it's a kind of basic training of your psyche. It kind of like rips apart who you are and forces you to like throw away a lot of your because you know you you you, you train yourself over the years to like even even on a sort of microscopic level like recognize through someone's body language oh I, this is the kind of person this is so this is the kind of person I this is what I usually do when I encounter this kind of person mm-hmm. yeah. or when this sort of a question comes up that I'm not comfortable with I'll generally deflect it in this way or I'll look at my watch or phone or whatever it is yeah in improv they really it really strips all of that down where every n- situation provides a new neutral space where you have to invent something new and you have to take what is given to you as itself on its face as it is and react to it in some truthful way. Mm-hmm. And I think for human beings, that's a really important thing to do and recognize and learn. Yeah. And it's, and, and you know, and then it also kind of gives you these skills, you know, of like quickly, building off what someone gives you and developing that kind of confidence. But for me personally, it was really amazing to like, oh, I do all this bullshit. Like there's just all this bullshit Mm -hmm. that when you take it away is scary, but then it gives you all these new opportunities. And lots of people have talked much more eloquently and powerfully about improv than me, like Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. Like they, they, you know, credit their whole careers with the kinds of, rules and skills that they've learned in improv. But mm. yeah, I think it's, um, 
I think it can be extremely valuable for, for, for anybody, not just somebody interested in comedy, you yeah. know, for those reasons. Mm-hmm. Have you done it since you've been in LA or? I haven't. No, I've, I've thought about it. Now I kind of feel like I'm a little scared. I don't know where I would, I'd, I'd be so rusty. Mm-hmm. I have to jump on something where no one's going to be mad at me <laughs> for <coughs> not being good. I've done the monologues at ASCAT a few times, but, uh, but yeah, I really miss it. I mean, I think it was, um, there's something really, uh, there's something just really powerful and raw and like exciting about creating this thing mm-hmm. with other people. And then it's just gone and never to be seen again. That being said, most improv shows are, really annoying to go to (laughs) you know like i uh, i think part of the reason i stopped is because i was just tired of asking friends to like please come to my show because it's like oh god who wants to go because you know i mean most of it the vast majority has a few good moments and then the rest of the stuff is like oh okay i see what they're doing they're piecing that together because not Mm -hmm. everybody's amazing at improv Mm -hmm. um but there's a lot of good stuff out there too and you just look at how many great not just comedians, but actors who've come through yeah. Upright Citizens Brigade in particular mm-hmm. over the years, you know, because I think it gives you this training, it gives you this confidence, and you work with all these incredibly funny people. Yeah. And and if you're on a Herald team or a sketch team, you develop all those great skills, those writing skills, those, you know, those interpersonal skills, you, you, you know, and, and you develop these relationships with people that, a lot of these people, you know, you carry that through life. Like you always have someone mm-hmm. who's gonna support you and be there for you, you know. And you're kind of going through, yeah, the same steps with these people. Yeah. It also happens. I know a lot of people who've been around for 10, 15 years, and they're still, you know, they didn't they didn't catch that lucky break. Yeah. And people that they were on a team with eight or ten years ago are now world famous and yeah. they're not mm-hmm. they're still just as funny you know and, yeah. and they're building a career in their own way but it's like there's also that thing where there's certain trains that take off and if you're not on one of them then you're just not gonna yeah be a millionaire <laughs> <laughs> but i think everybody now enters ucb thinking that i have at least a chance to be at the station yeah you know mm-hmm. yeah um for uh, you mentioned for writing as well as uh, you, uh, you, you're writing for TV comedy at the moment, mm-hmm. right? And is it in a writer's room or is it more? Right now, I'm not writing for anybody. No, no. Right now, most of my stuff is on my own. I uh, recently sold a feature, mm-hmm. which I will start working on in earnest once I figure out what I have to actually do. <laughs> uh, and I'm sort of at, at the moment out pitching. Yeah. And most of the staffing is going to happen in the spring, so. But I was working on At Midnight, and then I was working on this thing called The Fake News with Ted Nelms, and those are both in rooms. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that similar to how The Onion was when you were the editor? Yeah. Like that? Yeah, I mean, I think The Onion built its own like language and process over very many years, and each room is a kind of smaller version of that. Yeah. But it's generally the same basic principles at play. Yeah. yeah. Do you like that, or do you prefer the working alone? And well, there's parts about working alone that I really like. Um, I can go at my own pace. I can. I don't have to get into any arguments with anyone. <laughs> but there's a. But I hit. I hit a wall. I hit a limit. Much, much, much more quickly mm-hmm. when I'm on my own. And I think something I've been thinking about <clears throat> lately is like that improv used to do was improv unlocks all these other voices in your brain, all these other versions of you or different characters or personalities that you don't know are there. Mm -hmm. And they're just much more accessible when you're doing that regularly. And right now it's just me. And that's really boring. And it's really hard when you hit this like, well, I don't know how to think about this in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing a lot of solo writing over the past five or six months. And it's just, I'm just trying these different techniques to like, get somebody else in there. Yeah. Cause it's, it's really hard, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is the part about being in a room that I really love even, or even working with one other person. 
And it's the kind of thing that Twitter was really good at and still is sometimes where you're just building off each other, you yeah. know, and it just takes on this kinetic energy that's really, you know, has a life of its own and is really fun and rewarding. Yeah. And that's hard to get at when I'm just sitting by myself mm-hmm. listening to the Minecraft soundtrack, <laughs> <clears throat> trying to figure out what 11 different people are thinking at any given moment mm-hmm. in a in a script, you know? Yeah. It's really hard. What's your process for, for writing on your own? Do you... Well, you know, I used to give myself a really hard time about... Um, about not being productive. Mm -hmm. But I think over the past few years, I've recognized that, you know, there's a sort of like pre-production, production, production, post-production with any creative idea. Yeah. And that pre-production time really needs a lot of fucking around, you know? And and you need to be able to go off on tangents Mm -hmm. and take walks and play video games and do what you have to do, take a lot of showers (laughs) <laughs> to let ideas kind of percolate on that subconscious level. Yeah. So I've sort of, and, and that kind of works differently depending on the idea, but I will generally, um, you know, depending on what it is, it's, it's, it's usually scripts. I will start taking, just taking notes, just writing notes in a Google Doc of anything that kind of comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when I'm, when I'm really dedicated to one thing, I'm just, I'm kind of, it's always on my mind, you know? Um, and a lot of times when I'm lying in bed, actually I do come up with a lot of, uh, I have three kids, a nine-year-old, a three-year-old, and a 16-month-old. And uh, the three-year-old, you know, I'll put him to bed and I'll, and I'll lie in bed with him for 15 or 20 minutes. And that's kind of the only true quiet mm-hmm. time that I have all day. Mm-hmm. And, that, and all that stuff kind of just starts running through through my head and I'll, and I'll just start to start playing, playing out unbidden without me having to do any work. And I'll try to pluck stuff from that and write it down. And a lot of it is like sleeping on it, Mm -hmm. you know, and then getting to the point where I have to figure out all these other distractions to do where I can let my subconscious do the work that it needs to do. And then usually the, the good ideas will emerge on their own. You know, they'll sort of stay afloat. Yeah. And the rest of them sink away. Um, and then I just, and then I, I mean, I discovered outline. When I wrote the book is really the first time that I dedicated myself to, I'm going to do an outline and I'm going to finish the outline. I'm not going to abandon the outline. Because I'll usually get so excited like, oh, this is good. I want to I start writing now. Yeah. Because I like what this character, I have found this character's voice. But completing an outline is so, so, so important to me, Mm -hmm. you know, even just a rough one. And then I'll go through and I'll flesh out scenes in the outline. And then, you know, sometimes before I know it, I'll have a 35 page outline because I'm, I'm discovering the dialogue in there. Mm -hmm. The, the characters are starting to come to life because, you know, I've done the work of structuring it. And now it's like, what's happening in each of these bullet points? And I want to hear them talk. Um, And then I'll kind of go through. And usually once I've written that long, long outline, I kind of don't want to look at it for a while. Mm -hmm. Because partly I'm embarrassed, like, you know, (laughs) how much bad shit is probably in there. And then I'll just start writing. And then once I hit a wall, I'll I'll refer to the outline. Mm -hmm. And then I'll kind of go through again and revise the outline and then start writing. Right. Again. Um, I think the hardest challenge for me is, is self-editing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not great. I tend to go big and broad at first, and I need someone else to be like, this is so dumb. Why is he holding a salami gun or whatever? <laughs> and I'd be like, you're right, that is dumb. For me, it makes sense because I'm seeing the whole thing, but it's like, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I'm... I, have been very uh, good about working every single day, but I don't force myself to work longer than I need to. Right. I can usually do four hours is about my limit. Yeah. And then I have to do something else and take a break or whatever, or or work on something else or do shift locations or something. Yeah. 
But I don't feel bad if I only work for four hours. Yeah. But I definitely need an hour to get going. I can't. I'm not one of these people who can like slip it in for 20 minutes here or there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much my process, I guess. Mm-hmm. A lot of. I've also trained myself to. Besides lying in bed with my three-year-old thinking of ideas, as I'm drifting off to sleep, a lot of interesting, you know, ideas pop up. And I've kind of trained myself to remember them. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I never used to be able to remember them. Yeah, that's the And key. there's something lost for me in trying to find a notebook and write it down. Yeah. I like it breaks the flow. Mm-hmm. So I've, over the past couple of years, really developed this ability to like, hold on to that stuff and then in the morning I have it mm-hmm. so when I go back into to start writing in the morning it's it's there yeah have you always been a writer or is it something that you've this grown yeah. from I've always written I think I you know I prefer performing because it's so much easier uh-huh you know you know I like when I don't have to do all the work and I like when I can just like oh I'm gonna take my own reaction on this instead of I'm going to come up with every fucking character and what their fucking backstory is and where (laughs) they are and why they're doing plotting is really hard for me Mm -hmm. like figuring out what happens next. But yeah, I think I've always, I've always enjoyed writing. I just don't, you know, I don't know, maybe we all have it, but as you get older, you lose that sort of like effortless contact with, imagination you know it's like yeah. i think even the best people the most creative people it must be hard to hold on to that for a long time i think something closes off or calcifies over time you know yeah and it feels like uh the, the people are obsessed now with the why rather than just you know it's a story and then this happens next and it's like why 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 how did that get from there to there and I yeah. think that chokes a lot of uh, creative people off. Is like that that sense of, you know, maybe it comes with with practice or maybe or confidence, but that idea that you can fudge things and cheat certain things to happen. Without, yeah. Without that sense that a thousand people are going to turn around and go, that doesn't make sense. How dare you do that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> like I, you know, seeing the reaction to the Last Jedi, mm-hmm. which is a movie that I enjoyed, I thought it was fine. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, it's a Star Wars movie. I don't know. It must be so friggin' hard. I know Ryan Johnson a, a little bit and he's such a nice guy and it must be so Im- impossibly hard to make a Star Wars movie. Can you imagine the pressure? Yeah. And just like, and I'm not saying I feel bad for the guy, but so many people who are so critical of every little piece of it, it's like, well, what do you want it to be? Mm-hmm. And, and like, I don't know. There's just something about people who just will go on and on and on and on with criticisms of these things. Oftentimes people who don't work in a creative field and maybe just don't at least have some empathy for how difficult it is to get anything made, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, and I hate to be so grouchy about it, but I just find myself having less and less patience for the endless negativity and criticism about something. And then there's this, there's this, this thing. And I know the internet is hyperbolic, but saying like that movie is terrible instead of I didn't like that movie. Yeah. You know, it's like those those things have become conflated and I feel like that's so bad. Yeah. You know? And like to get into all the logic of you know, why and this doesn't make sense and you know, this is they come all these plot holes and it's like, well, is it is a is a Star Wars movie about plot? <laughs> you know? Like isn't yeah. it supposed to transport you for like a little while? Mm-hmm. And like let that stuff go? Like why do you need to fight over it? Yeah. I mean, there's movies that I don't like and I'm critical of, but I'm I am just such a fool for a big screen. Like if I'm sitting in front of a big screen, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, just fine. That's great. Yeah. I love it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards I can be like, oh, I guess that didn't make a ton of sense. But it's I don't find it personally offensive. No, yeah. I find that with all the, the the Marvel movies. I when I'm watching them in a, in a in the big screen, I'm like, this is great. I'm enjoying yeah. this. As soon as I take one step outside the screen, I'm like, that was awful. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and it's yeah. happened every single time. And they're not awful. They're you know, they're 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 very manufactured now, they're very controlled. You know, there's a, yeah. the, you can 
see that there is a whole process and they've got it fine you know they've got, they've finessed it to perfection especially if you compare them to the the DC movies which are just mm. sort of stumbling along at the moment yeah but they're not great movies they're okay and there's like why can't I just sit there and go I enjoyed that and then I don't care after that I've got no connection to it it's not like I have to carry it around forever yeah, and be, yeah. Like it doesn't define anything beyond the fact that you spent two hours watching a movie and that's yeah yeah and that someone else might have a different opinion yeah like there's <laughs> there was people talking about The Last Jedi and they were bringing up which there were lots of things that I thought you know could have been done better that I had critiques about they brought up something and i was like oh well this is the argument that i've heard that explains why people are okay with this it was the casino scene Mm -hmm. and then it turned into a fight i was in it was in a fight (laughs) the next thing i knew it was like wait what what happened i didn't even it wasn't even my opinion i was saying this is an interesting point of view that someone brought to mind yeah and then and then I was like on the defensive, uh-huh. and it was going on for so long. I was just like, guys, I don't have the energy for this. I don't even care. Yeah, and then <laughs> like, like random people start joining. You're yeah, like, Where did totally. It's like I don't <laughs> even have a strong, and I thought you didn't either. Like it started out, no one had a str- one person had a strong opinion, and the two of us were like, oh yeah, what about this? And then it was just like an all-out battle. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, like I used to work with Chris Hardwick on At Midnight and he he would talk about it like that people now, fandom has moved into such a place of ferocity that people look at entertainment as like a civil right, like it's a civil rights issue. Mm-hmm. If something is not the way they want it, they like, they, yeah. they, they react to it with the same emotion yeah. and outrage. You're on the wrong side would. of history for, <laughs> for <laughs> yeah. like in Star Wars. Okay. Yeah, it's <laughs> just like, my God. But I have tried, you know, for for a while now to just not be so negative about those. Like, I'll be negative about politics, but to just really mainly try to share things I liked, you know? Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't see a ton of, I don't see a ton to gain in, like, publicly shitting on, mm-hmm. you know? Just, yeah. like, so negative and, I don't know. People mostly are trying to do good things, you know? Yeah. Everyone's trying to make a good movie. Yeah. Or write a good book. Just not everybody can. Yeah. You know? That was one of the things I think came through in, in your book was that, you know, that, that sense of just go for it and just be positive. And there, there was, I don't remember any sections where it was like, I'm not a fan of this, but, you know, uh-huh. it's, very, it's very much like, yeah, you should give it a go. Yeah, you should give this a go. Yeah. In fact, this is one of the reasons, one of the two reasons why I do this podcast was because I was reading a book and I got to that section. I was like, yeah, I could do that. I've got sound stuff. I can do this. And oh, cool. So, yeah. So that's, it's, it's nice to feel that there is that kind of positive. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I wrote that uh, a few years ago. I had originally pitched to my agent that I was like, oh, I want to do a spoof of like a, a writing book, you know, where it's like a realistic you know, it's more of a realistic guide to how hard it is to write. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, you could, but I know this <laughs> publisher is looking for like an actual guide to comedy. Yeah. And I was like, all right, well, I'll do it like a spoof guide to comedy. But then <laughs> I was started reading it and like trying to put myself, or started writing it and trying to put myself in the reader's shoes. And I was like, I'd be so mad if some asshole just like wrote this book of like, fuck you, you can't do it, it's hard. You know, it's yeah. like, I want... And I really started to like empathize with and try to look through the eyes of someone picking up the book, hoping to find something. Mm-hmm. And it's like you have enough, you have enough enemies <laughs> as it is <laughs> lined up against you when you're trying to get into a line of work that's, you know, internally driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I wanted to just try to be an ally, you know, as much as I could. And I and once I kind of let go of that, like you know cynical lens it became a lot easier to mm-hmm. write it and i was amazed by the generosity of the people i interviewed and talked to and everybody and i was a little shy about it i was like i got you know like a first of all who am i to write this book mm-hmm. but a handbook to comedy like that's so you know but everybody was like oh i wish i had this when i was younger i wish i just had something mm-hmm. that i could pick up yeah and look at just to see what other people have to say about these topics, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And now there's a million podcasts about this kind of stuff, but um, still not that many books about it, you know? Yeah. And every once in a while, it's not like the book sells gangbusters, but every once in a while, someone will <clears throat> send me an email or track me down on Twitter and like tell me that they got something out of it. Mm. And it really is every single time like, oh, wow, I yeah. forgot that humans read it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because I haven't thought about that piece of shit in years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where did, you, you grew up in New Hampshire, or were you just born there and moved out? Or? Uh, I was born in New York, and oh, okay. we moved to New Hampshire when I was eight. But, so that, that's really where I grew up, though. New okay. Hampshire. Yeah. Mm. What I, I, do you feel like um, growing up on the East Coast kind of defined or, or formed a sense of comedy or a sense of of cynicism or, or anything that came yeah, from maybe I think there's just like a harshness to the East Coast mm-hmm. you know like the weather is harsher yeah people's attitudes are harsher um, you know it's like and, and my parents you know both both from New York and both pretty sarcastic harsh people I catch myself now like just the way I say things like sounds so aggressive, you know, at, at home. It's like, I don't even mean that one-tenth of that. Um, but I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't I don't know. I don't think I've done a lot of reflection about that. I mean, I think the biggest influences were, you know, my dad and brothers, you know, my, my mom really gave me more of my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the friends that I, you know, I have this core group of like four or five friends that I pretty much grew up with. You know, we still get together once a year mm-hmm. <clears throat> and do something. And then now that I have a nine-year-old, I can start to explore with him, like, the stuff that he's really into and yeah. and revisit things anew, like Gary Larson. He, you know, he loves uh-huh. the far side. And just rereading those and thinking, like, wow, I think this actually had more of an influence on me than almost anything else, you yeah. know, those, those comics. Um. Yeah, you know, like a, a handful of movies watching grow, growing up. But I don't know so much about... Um, I mean, I do think people in New England are, like, are kind of funny. Yeah. You know, you have to sort of be funny when life sucks so bad, you know, uh-huh. most of the year. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I'm Irish Catholic on one side, Italian Catholic on the other side. There's a lot of humor there as well, <laughs> you know. A lot that sucks there too. Yeah, there was a uh, on on one show I was on. I remember there was the the, the craft service guys with these two large, larger than life kind of characters. One of them was from Jersey, I think, and grew up in New York. I went to college in New York, um, and the other one was from Virginia, maybe. And I would throughout the day I would just go there and just watch them because they were they. I mean, they rarely moved from their spot and they would just tell stories and just deal with people like they were... Even if someone was just walking by, it was like they were a heckler or an enemy and they would just Uh go at them. And (laughs) I just remember being amazed that, like, how... One, they they were fantastic at it. They were so quick. There was no... You know, it wasn't intellect that came out, but it was just so good at cutting people mm-hmm. down I, I was in awe of that because that's one of the things I've never felt comfortable I'm one of those people <laughs> who like three months later would go ah oh, damn I should have <laughs> and I just remember watching them and I remember very clearly thinking it must be like an east coast thing and where like at some stage it becomes like a gentle thing and then when it hits Los Angeles it's not there because people are just so enthusiastic and, and it's all about support and like, uh-huh. oh, you're so great. That's fantastic. What a fantastic idea. And yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but it's just like uh, this, this, this idea that America being so big and yet there's so clearly defined these ideas of like regions of comedy. And, oh, yeah. And, you know, you just say, oh, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. I mean, you instantly you always think, okay, so you're that kind of guy. It's like, hey, buddy, and he, yeah, and it's and Californians aren't funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if they are. I don't. I I can't think of any. It always seems, especially in LA, it always seems to come to like, I'll hear people that say, wouldn't it be funny if we we made this story about working in the film industry? 
And you're like, no, it wouldn't be. It never has been. <laughs> no one yeah. cares except for you. Your in-jokes aren't that good. Yeah. <laughs> and it always seems to come to that that very like locked-in idea. Yeah. And it's always about California comedy always seems to be about transplanting someone from somewhere else into California and how they That's deal true, with it. That's true, yeah. Yeah, I think New York is pretty self-isolating too. Mm. But maybe there's just more of a... Everybody's in everybody's in everybody else's shit a lot more, you know. You're just like yeah. having to deal with more people, <laughs> and it just feels more like a melting something mm-hmm. there. Yeah, there's no, there's not as much. But I don't know, you know. I mean, I, I lived in New York City for 13 years, and it's a good place to live when you're young, you know. Yeah, it's a lot of energy, a lot of effort. But once we started having kids, it was just like, oh, my boy, this is, you know, you can't expand mm-hmm. real estate-wise. There's no, you're, you're never going to be able to afford anything that can actually support yeah. a family. And it's just so much effort to go from point A to point B, you know, and then, and the weather, Jamie, you know? <laughs> I mean, I lived on the East Coast my whole life, our last winter there. We had bought a house in northern Connecticut, almost Massachusetts, mm-hmm. that we just bought almost on a whim because it was it was so cheap and run down. And we had friends that lived in the area, and we thought, like, well, we'll, we'll fix it up over the years. Eventually, maybe we'll move there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and circumstances made themselves that we could live there for a year while I was writing that book, actually. And then, you know, I ran out of money, and there's not a lot of comedy writing in Granby, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So I was working during the week in Brooklyn, and then I would come back in Manhattan, living in Brooklyn, and I would come back on the weekends. And it was during the winter of the polar vortex. I don't remember, I don't mm. know if you remember hearing yeah. about the polar mm-hmm. vortex. But uh, every weekend I would I would drive if I could. Sometimes I would be snowed in and couldn't move the car or take the train. And I would spend the whole weekend digging out the house, just shoveling, breaking ice, splitting wood, getting the wood stoves ready. And my wife was there with two kids. All of them had lice. So all three of them had this (laughs) super strain of lice that would not go away. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I would leave, if I could get out and wasn't snowed in on the weekend, there would be a blizzard every Sunday night or Monday night for 11 straight weeks. Uh Uh-huh. And it got to the point, you know, finally in March, the first time I felt the warmth of the sun on my face, I I started crying. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) I think it's time. I think it's time. And luckily Mm -hmm. I got this job on at midnight a month or two later. But I remember, you know, when I first moved to New York and of course growing up in New Hampshire, winter is just a big part of it. You know, you're always out and about. It's it's an active state. But just being like, yeah. It's good to have four seasons. Mm-hmm. People in the rest of the country don't know what it's like to live because you're not miserable. <laughs> but then, you know, after 37 or whatever years, it's just like, I don't want to be miserable anymore. I'm The spring is so wonderful, yes, because of the blossoming of life, but also because I'm finally not depressed. Yeah. And it's been four months of, like, mm-hmm. seasonal affective disorder. And, you know? Yeah. It's like, so I don't mind not having the winter at all. Whenever my kids are like, what about snow? Should we go to Big Bear? I'm like, no, fuck snow. (laughs) You guys don't know how lucky you are. Yeah, you don't know how horrible it is. Yeah. I remember, I I mean, this is, England, for a start, growing up in England in the 70s was just, it was like a very limited palette that was like beige and gray was all I remember. And I still dream in this kind of twilighty beige and gray everywhere. It's just miserable. And, uh, they have, I mean, it's very seasonal there, but it's not, uh, in London, it's not as harsh as the rest of the country. But there's still this, you know, you'll you'll wake up at seven o'clock in the morning and it won't get light until nine o'clock. Yeah. And then at two o'clock in the afternoon, the sun's already gone. And there's just yeah. this, this period of the year where it's like, is it, it is night just <laughs> here now for the whole of this time? And yeah. so to come here and, and you know, there's still moments where, I've been here now for nine years, nearly 10 years. And there's still moments where I'm just driving along and I'll crest the hill and there's mountains in the mm-hmm. distance or 
you know, the sun is out and it's January and it's 80 something degrees. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this isn't London. This is yeah. this is somewhere else. This is this is the way it should be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, well, I'm half half Irish, but then the other the other half is, you know, Sicilian and mm-hmm. all that shit. Yeah. Like I need to, I don't even really sunburn. I just turn tan like I. It took me almost 40 years, though, to realize, like, I just need to be in this kind of a climate. I need to be back yeah. to the father, the fatherland, <laughs> you know? I need to feel that sun on my cancerous skin yeah. <laughs> as much as I can. Does it snow in London? It doesn't really it snow does. in London, it, right? It's, oh, it does. Uh, it's, it's very rarely during the winter. It's always normally, like, just as it's about to go into spring, it will suddenly snow for a couple of weeks. Oh. Um, it does snow. It snowed heavily a few times when I was a kid. There was a, a a really cold snap that like it came down pretty heavily then, and then maybe every three or four years there'll be a big snow, hmm. um, and it's it's so busy there that it turns to slush really quickly. Mm-hmm. So you'll have like a foot of snow that becomes dark gray water yeah. very quickly, and everything is just wet. And that's that's the worst thing is that everything's wet and then it's it starts to warm up so it starts to rain or drizzle permanently so you're just walking around wet the whole time yeah and because london is in a, a basin it's damp anyway so everywhere uh-huh. it's just damp and moldy and that's yeah. the, the the feeling of winter there have you ever lived in new york or <clears throat> i haven't lived there i visited there a couple of times in the early 90s but i never lived the there. winter is the same thing there it's really beautiful that first snow mm-hmm. you know and it's just like the city is blanketed and yeah. this and then within minutes, it's just dirt, slush, yeah. vomit, <laughs> dead pigeons. And yeah. Re- yeah, it just becomes absolutely disgusting. And then all the water drains are backed up because it all, if it goes up two degrees, every, mm-hmm. all of it melts. And then everything, all the garbage starts flowing into the streets and the subways yeah. get flooded. And yeah. Yeah, that's the one, one good thing about London is the drainage system is incredible. It's like the old Victorian, like a huge. Victorian pipes that are everywhere. The, the problem is that they break all the time, so you'll suddenly oh. have a geyser in the middle of the high street. But the there's never that well, never. There's there's very rarely that backed up drainage thing that seems to happen in America all the time. When, yeah, which is good. I think New York is about to about to fall apart. Yeah, is it? I mean, it's almost it almost feels like it's like Holland or something where it's under sea level. At yeah, the moment, so I mean, everything was built so long ago. I think there's two main water mains and they're all they're both like they were both built 600 years ago or whatever mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they're just like falling apart the, the the subway system has been completely mismanaged and starting to fall apart and yeah a lot of the bridges the bridges are all over 100 years old yeah they're all falling apart but greatest city in the world you know <laughs> If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. You just have to be a miserable alcoholic. <laughs> um, if you want people to find you um, online or... I don't want find you. To okay. Find well, that's good then. I won't put any links in the, the show notes. But but thank you for coming down and doing this. Oh, it was my pleasure. Lovely to speak with you among so many nice bicycles. That's it for the show. We'll be back in two weeks. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and contact us by email at whoiam at gmail.com or by phone at 818-308-4066. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, there is a submissions form on the site. We're also on iTunes where you can leave a rating if you feel inclined. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and this was This Is Who I Am.